I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Music of Gene Loves Jezebel, which features my guest today on the program, Jay Aston. Let me tell you a little bit about Jay Aston and Gene Loves Jezebel. Now, there's a famous quote, and I think it's from Lord Byron, uh, and it goes something like this You can't pick your family, but you can pick the members of your band. Now, it's hard to argue with that sentiment, but sometimes the members of the band that you picked are comprised of the family members that you didn't. You know, Oasis, The Kinks, The Black Crows, Bauhaus, that's not that uncommon. But what is uncommon is when the siblings in question are identical twins. I mean, it does happen. There's Kim and Kelly Deal of The Breeders. There's Charlie and Craig Reed of The Proclaimers. Tegan and Sarah Quinn of Tegan and Sarah are twins. And then there's Jay and Michael Aston of Gene Loves Jezebel. Sometimes this arrangement works out, and sometimes it doesn't. Our story today falls into the it did for a while, but now it really fucking doesn't category. But before we get to the nasty business, let's first go to Wales, shall we? Somewhere around 1980 in their native Wales, the Aston lads were in a band called Slav Arian. Maybe they reconsidered that name because it sounded too much like the name of a Bond villain or an opponent for Rocky to box or a white supremacist beer. Whatever the reason was, they abandoned the name Slav Arian and decided instead to graft the name of Gene Vincent with his song Jezebel, and boom, Gene Loves Jezebel was born. So in the same way with Hootie and the Blowfish, there was no Hootie and there were no Blowfish in the band. With Gene Loves Jezebel, in that band there was no Gene and there was no Jezebel. And I know that all sounds obvious right now, but when I was 16 in 1986 and I was watching 120 Minutes and Gene Loves Jezebel came on, I was always wondering which one was Gene and which one was Jezebel. Laugh all you want at me, but you know you did it too. Okay, back to our story. So the Aston brothers moved to London, they changed their band name, and they changed their lineup. Along with bassist Julianne Regan and drummer James Chater, they started gigging around town, and the shows went well. 
The Aston brothers were charismatic and handsome. The band's new lineup was surprisingly tight for being so new, and the songs were good. So that cocktail got them signed, and they were signed to the British indie label Situation 2. Here's why that was a great label to be on. Situation 2 got started in 1981 by Peter Kent. He's also the co-founder of 4AD Records. And Kent was one of those guys who always knew what he was doing. By the time Gene Loves Jezebel signed with Situation 2, they'd already put out records by David J. and The Associates, and soon after, Kent would sign Tones on Tail, The Cult, and The Charlatans UK. When I say that Kent knew what he was doing, what I mean is he really knew what he was doing. Situation 2 was an offshoot of Beggar's Banquet Records, and Beggar's Banquet Records were distributed by Warner Music International. So, because of this connection, not only would bands get widespread attention, it made it easier to get their releases into the UK indie charts. And that's exactly what they did. Keeping that strategy in mind, in 1982, Situation 2 put out the band's first single, Shaving My Neck, and Gene Loves Jezebel were off and running. Gene Loves Jezebel's debut album came out in 1983. Titled Promise, it went straight into the top 10, peaking at number 8. Featuring Screaming for Emmeline and Scheming, it's an album that's raw and polished at the same time. Now, at this point in their career, the band was hot. They recorded a Peel session, and they toured with their countryman John Cale. But by the time their second album, Immigrant, hit shelves in 1985, things had changed a bit. Regan had left to form All About Eve, and at the beginning of a tour of America, founding member Ian Hudson quit, and was replaced by James Stevenson. Stevenson had played with Chelsea and Gen X, and at the time, he was playing guitar in Kim Wilde's band. Fun fact, Stevenson is actually in the video for Kids in America. If you want to spot him, he's the one playing the Les Paul. By 1986, Gene Loves Jezebel were bumped up to Beggar's Banquet, who were distributed in the U.S. by Geffen. Again, a strategically genius association. Their third record, Discover, hit 32 on the UK Albums chart, and thanks to the exposure via Gethin, US College Radio was all over Gene Loves Jezebel. Songs like Desire and Heartache both made massive splashes at College Radio. So yes, slowly but surely, Gene Loves Jezebel were cracking the US market. They were all over MTV, they were all over the radio, and along with The Cure, Susie and the Banshees, and Love and Rockets, they were part of a goth pop syndicate that was selling records to gloomy American suburban kids. Like me. When the band got to work on their fourth album, they were well aware of their growing global fan base. Employing drummer number five, former Spear of Destiny and Thompson Twins member Chris Bell, Gene Loves Jezebel emerged with a sound that was glossier, poppier, and dancier. Translation? Big success. 1988's The House of Dolls spawned hits like 20 Killer Hertz and The Motion of Love, which cracked the Billboard Top 100. At this point, things were going so well for Gene Loves Jezebel, Michael Aston thought it was the perfect time to go solo. To be fair, he didn't like the creative direction the band was headed, and he and his brother really hadn't been getting along, so he moved west to California to work on his own music. Meanwhile, Gene Loves Jezebel pressed on. 1989's Kiss of Life contained a song called Jealous, which was their highest-charting U.S. hit, 
and the band were excited to come to the United States and play their highest profile tour yet. But in spite of their excitement and the success of the Jealous single, a U.S. tour with Concrete Blonde was canceled after Concrete Blonde pulled out. The band's reason was apparently due to someone in Gene Loves Jezebel making fun of Concrete Blonde singer Johnette Napolitano. And as a result of that professional gaffe, while Jealous was taking off in the U.S., Gene Loves Jezebel were nowhere near it, and instead found themselves touring Europe with Billy Idol. Financially frustrated, Gene Loves Jezebel convinced Beggar's Banquet and Geffen to let them out of their contracts. They thought they could get a better deal elsewhere, so they relocated to L.A., and they were offered a deal, this time with Atlantic Records, but they decided against it. Why? So they could sign with the brand new label, Savage Records. A good move? Uh, It was the opposite. It was actually a terrible move. I mean, it started out okay. At the end of 1992, they put out a record called Heavenly Bodies, and it had a single called Josephina, which started to catch on. But then, Savage Records went bust, and they shut their doors. And that was that. So, for the better part of the 90s, with the band on a kind of labelless hiatus, the decade went down like this. Jay put out a solo album. Michael put out a solo album. Jay started playing some live shows. Then Michael started playing with a band called Scenic. Then Michael started a band called Immigrant. Later, they were renamed Edith Grove. They put out a record that was well-received, and then the estranged brothers called a truce and moved into a house in L.A., and then Gene Loves Jezebel rose from the ashes. But when you're dealing with the Aston brothers, rising from the ashes is about as easy as rising from tar. Predictably, the Astons fell out again, and the Michael-less Gene Loves Jezebel put a record out in 1999 called Eight, and it was a real return to form. Undaunted, Michael said, Who cares about your band? I'm going to start my own band. And guess what we're going to be called? Gene Loves Jezebel. (laughs) And then the real trouble began. I'll spare you the legal details, but here was the problem. There were two Aston brothers, and there were two bands called Gene Loves Jezebel. So here's what happened. The brothers went to court, and the judge said, Well, you really can't have two bands that have the same name. I'm no legal expert, but it is hard to argue with that logic. So, after a series of lawsuits, court battles, and a lot of wasted money, the ruling is this. In the UK, Jay Aston's band is Gene Loves Jezebel. In the US, Jay Aston's band is Jay Aston's Gene Loves Jezebel. In the UK, Michael Aston's band is Michael Aston's Gene Loves Jezebel. And in the US, Michael Aston's band is Gene Loves Jezebel. And yes, these questions will be on the final. At long last, all of this brings us to Dance Underwater, the first Gene Loves Jezebel album in almost 15 years. It's a UK import, so it's under the Gene Loves Jezebel banner, and it's awesome. It's 10 songs of vintage brilliance. It's melodic, it's catchy, and it's loaded with feeling and heart. And the lineup for this album is a familiar one. It's Jay Aston, Stevenson, Rizzo, and Bell and they've never sounded better. Now, I gotta be honest with you guys, I didn't know what to expect when I sat down with Jay Aston for this interview, but I found him to be an absolute sweetheart. And uh, he's warm, he's soft-spoken, and he's very thoughtful, and I think you're gonna like him. So, without further ado, here's my chat with Jay Aston of Gene Loves Jezebel. Oh, we're in the United States. 
Jay Aston is Gene Love Jezebel. Forgive me. <laughs> Enjoy the chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I love San Francisco. Love it. It's just too expensive to live there, though. Yeah, you know? good God. I know. I know. Yeah. I I feel like I was just looking at your tour schedule, and I see you're playing the DNA Lounge, and I feel like you may have played that venue in the 80s. Is that possible? Oh, totally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I think I think my mom wouldn't let me go to the show because I was too uh, young. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. It, was, it was one of our best gigs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that you that you actually remember it because that was so long ago, and you played some yeah, of your shows. Yeah, well, DNA's been there a long time, you know, so it, it's, I'm always surprised to see it's still there myself, which is cool, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's nice to know. There was a... Another venue there called the I-Beam. That was another place. Yeah, yeah. We played the I-Beam a couple of times. Sold out a couple of times. Yeah, I remember. Is that, that's not there anymore though, right? I-Beam is no longer there. Uh, but, that's uh, yeah, a shame. I know. Yeah. It was a good venue. But the uh, the DNA is holding steady. Um, right. So, well, this is great. I'm, I'm excited to chat with you. I was kind of thinking about this. You know, bands uh, like yourself who've been around. You know, I'm 48. I remember when you guys started, uh, right. which, which carbon dates us both. <laughs> but uh are you how are you with with the past are you a sentimental person or do you find that as you get older you become less sentimental uh my sentimental uh oh i that's i've never really thought about that i mean it's it's an odd one you, 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 ooh, it's an odd one I, I'm not, I don't think i'm sentimental or or nostalgic i mean i don't, i mean it's interesting but what when we first came through it's the only band i've ever been in is, is this band and I mean, it was such an adventure. So I do look back on it with great fondness because it, it was, you know, an, an amazing time. We came out of nowhere, really, and there was no one quite like us. So I look back on and met so, such amazing people along the way. You mentioned the I-Beam and DNA. They're just amazing places to play because you had a real you know, connection with the audience. You'd, you'd hang out with them. As soon as we became bigger and started playing theatres and, and, you know, amphitheatres, it actually got very boring, I thought, you know. Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, I suppose, yeah, I, mean, I look back with great um, fondness on those tours. We toured a lot, you know, in, in the 80s and early 90s. So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there was a, it was an interesting period. I mean, uh, it was prior to things getting really departmentalized, you know. Uh, our bands used to hang out together. All the different kinds of bands would all be hanging out in the same sort of places. Uh, something seemed to happen after grunge where people seemed to hang out in, in little sects and little cults of their own and... Uh, I kind of miss the 80s for that kind of feel where you just just as much hang out with uh, the Chili Peppers or, uh, you know, um, or the Cure as anybody else. And everybody seemed to be competitive in a good way. Everyone to have their own songs, their own look. Uh, and the record companies hadn't quite started just making bands copy each other, you know, so which is interesting period, you know. Was there, did you feel there was a fellowship that that was really a something that that actually sort of stopped happening then is what you're saying is that there there was a closeness between bands well when we started there was no chance of a band like gene loves jezebel getting played on uh daytime radio in the uk for instance or being on tv and that kind of freed you up but lots of the other bands too i mean uh, none of us would i mean the birthday party any of us bands wouldn't have expected to be signed up by a major record label and so there was a, there was a freedom to that where you could do what you wanted you know you weren't trying to appeal to um the pop masses, as it were, 
and that that changed by the you know by the mid 80s that kind of started really changing i thought and uh Everyone was aiming for the big record contract, and all the big record companies were signing uh, lots of alternative bands. You know, it wasn't just um, a select few. It was. It seemed like if you had a, a top ten indie song in the English um, indie charts, you were signed up by a major. Pretty much, it seemed to me. So uh, there was definitely an interesting period of freedom where you did not expect to be played on MTV. We came to America first in '84, just to record with John Cale in New York, and we played a couple of shows. And there was absolutely no chance a band like us would ever be on MTV. That's the way we saw it. So the, we didn't try to get on MTV. So even though we were such a visual band, etc., that was not aimed at um, conquering, you know, uh, American television. <laughs> so, uh, so it, it was uh, it was free. It was very free. Uh, and you'd, you'd, you'd run into all kinds of people in, in those days. You'd go to places like Dan Satira in New York or DNA. And you'd be all kinds of different sort of people, artists hanging out, you know, for video uh, people and just all kinds of I just I just found by the the last the, we got to the late 80s everything just it got very um corporate I guess is the word I'm looking for I mean everything was just so organized and it just just the fun seemed to go out of it I for me personally anyway so I don't look at I don't look um past sort of 85 was 86 is the most interesting period for for me and Gene Lewis Jezebel anyway uh how how do you artistically? I know people who who love the band have have loved you for years. How mm. do you artistically? How do you move forward in a way that lets people know that you're an ongoing concern? You're an ongoing artistic concern, and you're not relying on just the past. Well, it's it's uh, well for me it's it's well it's a, it's a struggle that one obviously because people always want you to do. Um, 80s festivals or I do or builds with bands from your sometimes not even from your era they often try to put us with bands that were before us really but and I tend to always turn them down we just did we did one in LA recently uh they paid very well and it and the visas are so expensive come to the US it kind of covered those costs and so we did it but um my brother has a version of the band too as you probably know and he he does all those things all the time but for me for us we don't particularly like doing those kind of things because I'm always trying to write new songs and I'm always trying to a better song and you develop, you know, I guess that's why I'm not so uh, sentimental about what I've done before. I'm always trying to do something better, you know? Um, and I think that's why dance underwater is a good, we're, we're proud of that as an album. We think we've, um, we've grown as a, a group uh, and it was a, a good album for us to make, you know, how are you as a songwriter now compared to, 25 30 years ago what what has gotten stronger for you uh well you, the experience you know the, the, the i mean the, for instance i'm working on a song one of the first songs i ever wrote was a song called slaves and i, I never released it but um before there was a gene of jazz i said have a drum machine and, and i could write very freely and i never felt that um fitted the band but i'm I, i've come back to it recently and i've just my perspective has changed. You know, this is before I even came to the United States or traveled around Europe uh, with, with Gino's Jezebel. And um, the, the, meanings, the meanings of the song, I mean, that's the origin of the song was just about not being a slave to anybody. But um, I've grown so much older. I've been through so many changes. I, I'm no longer slave to alcohol, drugs, or any of those things that before might have been uh, something that took up a lot of your time and energy. So I'm much more focused on being alive and um and just enjoying life really as opposed to being in in dark clubs <laughs> getting hammered <laughs> oh you know you know what i mean so, well, so my life is not, it's not i mean 
Um, my, lots of my friends, you know, one o'clock or six o'clock in the evening, they're looking forward to having a drink, and I find that completely boring idea to me now. And if you'd said that to me when I wrote that song, Slaves, those years ago, I thought you were insane. What do you mean I'm not having a beer? Are you are you already in mind? But uh, <laughs> it's the other way now. I think it's, I look at it like, are you crazy? You're gonna do what? Well, well <laughs> so, how did how did you survive? Because a lot of people, either they can't stop or they don't survive. Like, how were you able to not be a slave to that uh, at, at this point in your life? Where yeah. where was the demarcation point for you? I, su- I suppose I was in some ways lucky. Um, I didn't get addicted to anything particularly. Uh, I think I was, I was very vain as a person, so I think it affected my looks. I was very uh, concerned about. I, I could care a lot as a singer. I thought I was a, the best singer around, and I didn't want to f- mess up my voice. Uh, so things like cocaine are not very good for singers. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> um, and it was a lot, a lot to do with vanity, and, and just um, I like to walk a lot. You know, I, I pe- people know will tell you I walk 20, 30 miles a day sometimes, and you have to be pretty fit to be able to do that. Um, and I just get so much pleasure out of that. You know, sometimes I can suffer from. Most people suffer from depression, some degree or another. And whenever I feel blue, I just find if I go for a, a long hike, sometimes take a small guitar with me, you know, I'll, I'll have, it'll be the best, most therapeutic. And I'll come out of the blues and, you know, come write a song, write some notes, you know, I'll do a little, you know, I'll write some blogs and things. Um, and I just find it incredibly therapeutic. So I guess I was just lucky. Um, I, people around me, I noticed were much more um, into getting fucked up to use a bit, went, went for <laughs> to better term than that but uh you know that there'd, there'd always be you know some pretty dark people hanging around at two in the morning after the gig and just doing i'd be thinking what are we doing this for you know it's like and i'd wake up in a, a beautiful blue sky day and i'd go and visit whatever was local a local cathedral or something of interest to me uh, i'd take photographs and i just i think life is very short and, and as you get older you're very aware of that and, and time is precious, you know, so I'm constantly trying to become a better guitar player, you know, and I'm, 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 as far as singing wise, I think that's always been a natural thing for me, but I do enjoy working on different parts of the voice. You can, you can do a lot with, uh, with just a voice. I think music is within us all. You don't have to be a great singer to be musical. And, uh, it's one of the great re- reliefs of the music industry being dead to me is that you don't have to become successful because you can't be successful in the music business anymore so you may as well just express yourself and that's what music's for isn't it i mean how long did the the rock and roll era last not very long really 50s 60s 70s 80s was the last time when you could make, really make money in music the time 90s hit you know i mean it was getting smaller and smaller on the margins of you know, less millionaires being made for sure and now it's pretty impossible to make a, a, be a be a millionaire in the music industry unless you play uh, a very safe game and, and pretty much do covers or very bland make very bland music and it's pretty difficult you know people have to do live what are, i mean a live gig these days you got meet and greet meet people before the gig signed autograph tons of stuff you got to do social media is immense amount you have to do and just that's just to try and be successful uh i mean back in the day which is not that long ago when there was a lot of money in the music industry you literally had no con- very little contact. When an album came out, you'd, you'd do a press run. Uh, when you're making the records, you had no contact with the audience, you know. So it was just touring, and uh, and when the album came out, you'd you talk to it to journalists, and so it was a lot less work than it is today. 
and for the rewards are much less today. Uh, but by the same token, the, the the industry is dead in that sense. As, you know, so there's le- less creepy people around, <laughs> in my opinion. Do you, I mean, what about financially? Do you think about the future in that way? Like, you know, if you can somehow license your music, if you can, I mean, there are ways. There um, are ways, but it's, everybody's trying to do it, as you probably know. Um, it's very competitive on that side of it, and and the the music. Uh, sorry, the the movie industry and television. It's 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 gone the same way as the the MP3 destroyed the the music industry, and as you know now, it's pretty. Streaming is everywhere now, so it's not as lucrative. The money's not as uh, where, where it was before, so uh, it's difficult, you know, to earn a living. You know, this it's the world we're living. It's a very different world we're facing, isn't it? I mean, there's lots of it's hard for people to get jobs these days and high-paying jobs, and it seems a few people have high-paying jobs, and the rest of us struggle. You know, I mean, you know, you live in San Francisco. You know, what it's like up there. If, if you're not have a high-paying job, you've had it. So the, the kind of counterculture doesn't exist in these cities anymore um not, not to the degree it used to um uh it's it's so it's really difficult i mean there's a school of thought that says we should give everyone you know two grand a month and let them let the economy run that way which is quite quite a plausible way of doing things they're trying that in places like uh, holland aren't they so oh sorry uh, the netherlands um so i mean this the, the whole thing has to change basically i mean the world cannot continue as it is and we're in this point. We've got to, obviously got a Trump, and we've got a Brexit, where there are people trying to think it can be like it used to be, or like they think it used to be, 50 years ago, which it never was. But that kind of world just can't be sustained anymore. You know that you can't suddenly in, invent um, uh, that uh, industries that have disappeared, the coal industries, etc. They just can't. The steel industries. I mean, they're all just disappearing. You know, to what they were. Well. It's incredible because when I started listening to you guys in, you know, 84, 85, we had Reagan and Thatcher. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Similar touch, similar thing. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Uh, We were reacting against that. um, And and the music was reactionary against that. And it was a difficult. I mean, we used to have to tour tour through Europe. And it it was a pain in the neck touring through Europe because you'd every, every border, you'd have to declare all your amplifiers whatever you're carrying it's all the serial numbers you have to think called a carne and the eu freed us up where we could go through borders really easily and it was great but you know the way things have gone in england with brexit we're kind of going backwards and the same over here with immigration as you know etc it's like america is a country of immigrants it's it's its strength you know that's what makes it great to me that's interesting to us that comes here to visit we love the diversity and it's amazing to us you know um, where where do you call home now? I just move around. I mean, I, I'm a victim of <laughs> of the music industry shrinking because uh, that's the irony of it. It's, it's freed me, but in many ways, I can't afford to to, to get a, an apartment in in somewhere where I'd like to live. San Francisco. I'd love to live in San Francisco. It's my favorite city in the U.S. Uh, probably in the world. Um, um, so I just keep on moving. Really, I do gigs and. Uh, just pop up in places and, and just wander around to get, you know, odd checks come in for songs here and there. And I just keep moving. So I don't really have a, a base, to be honest. With you. I just keep moving. I be I tend to spend the sum, the winters here in L.A. Uh, I'm here now just because we've got this tour coming up and I thought, oh, I may as well, I can hang out in London or I can come here. So I thought I'd just come here and, you know, check out the blue skies and, um, do some hiking and some. So I'm working on songs constantly as well, of course, doing solo things, which really excites me. My solo stuff, but um, 
so yeah, I, I'm, I really won't, I can't tell you where I'll be this time next year, basically. So that, <laughs> that, that is how my life has been for the last sort of 20 years, probably. So, well, you're a true troubadour then. I guess I am. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Always trying to travel light, you know. And sometimes I get companies give me guitars and things, and I'm like, I can't, I can't carry them. So <laughs> it's it's funny, you know. People say, "Oh, you got to read this book, Jay." I said, "What?" I'll, I say, "Well, what's the Kindle?" You know, I get on Kindle. <laughs> I, I just can't carry stuff, you know. <laughs> well, there yeah. is a sort of portability now. That's the beauty. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Right. It I mean, it's yeah. freeing. And I, I remember I went to uh, Vancouver years ago. To uh, I was just on vacation. I took like thirty CDs with me, yeah, and yeah, you know, and, yeah. and they were heavy. Uh, and now, <laughs> obviously, there's you know there there's there's no carrying of anything, whether it's nope. books or or music. Well, we used to we're touring in the eighties. We'd all have boom boxes, whatever, and tons of cassettes, you know. And that was <laughs> right. That was a lot of stuff to carry as well, you know. And now it's just, as you know, it's just your phone does it all now. You oh, know? It's so amazing. It's staggering. Yeah. You know, you strike me as a very, a very calm guy. Have you always been a sort? Have you? Are, am I right in in perceiving that that you're very? You seem like a guy who's very thoughtful, very calm. Um, maybe maybe all those walks are are doing you some good. <laughs> have you always been that guy? Uh, well, I'm a human being. You know, I have different sides. I mean, I keep. I'm. I think I've. Je- my inner core is very a peaceful person, yeah. But I went to a very violent Catholic school because Catholics in is not a big religion in in the UK. With a kind of a not, I was a minority religion, so it was a very tough school. And we which, which was about set. I was from a very gentle kind of village, but the school I went to is in a very industrial area, and it was a very very violent school. So I was brought up with great violence. Um, so I'm aware of those roots. I'm, I, I suppose walking and that and music escape, helped me escape from all that. I knew there was another world out there that wasn't just you know seeing some thug or thugs on a Monday morning that want to beat you up. So um, so I you know that, there's two sides to it. I mean it prepares it prepares you for life, I guess. Violence doesn't. I learned one thing about violence, and I've had plenty of violence in my life that uh, it. Um, Achieves nothing at all. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, but you as a, as a ten or eleven year old or nine year old, twelve, thirteen, uh, you'd have to confront pe- people twice your size. Then you, there was two options: you either ran away from it, which was, would have been a probably smarter option, or, or you took them on, and I would take them on. And I, I never lost a fight in my life, but I probably had my nose broken about fifty times and co- <laughs> and come back in a hell of a mess, you know. But um, but but my, as I say, my inner core is is a very a gentle person and which I'm very grateful for. And, and, you know, as you know, music, I discovered so much through music. There's another world out there when you're younger, no matter how bad your life is, music um, and art as a whole, as you know, it shows you that there's, there are other things out there. It's not all darkness and decay. <laughs> no, there, there's certainly a lot of that. Um, was the violence because, because of religion? Is that what that was? No, no, it's just, it just so happened. I mean, because we were Catholic, my my mum's uh, of Irish heritage, French Irish heritage, and so they're very strict about the, the kids. The, her mum, my grandmother, would put pressure. She, my mother wasn't religious. My parents weren't religious at all. But to go to Catholic school just to placate the the Catholic relatives, you know. And so we went to a Catholic school, and so so kids from like thirty mile radius, whatever, would go to that school, and there'd be a lot of you know Italian. Uh, descent, Irish descent, um, but there would be kids from different areas. So you were outside, or we were all outsiders in in this school, 
And then I'd go back to my own village and you'd be an outsider there because you went to a different school. So you were constantly an outsider. We were from, I was from a big family. I was a twin. There's lots of differences. Uh, and, and, and so there was always this feeling of being an outsider I always had. Um, and so I probably took that into, into the band really when I formed the band. But so, yeah, um, violence, what can I tell you? <laughs> yeah. had nothing to do with religion. the kid, the kids in, in my school were not religious at all. We, I mean, it's just, we were there because our parents sent us there and I'm sure there were a couple of exceptions, no doubt, but, um, uh, I mean, the good thing about Catholic school is the music. I mean, they want, they spotted, I, I could sing, so they wanted me in the choir and stuff, but. Um, but there was, I did enjoy the, uh, the songs, <laughs> the melodies going up and down, which is, yeah, what well, that some kind of release, you know, when did you self-identify as being a musician? Uh, I, from I could always tell I could sing. That's something I always had, you know, it was, I've always been able, I've always uh, had that gift. I think lots of people have the gift too. Like I can always pick out a melody and I like to sing and if you listen to, um, any Gene Loves Jezebel songs I'm involved in, uh, that if I sing them, they have to, uh, there has to be a melody there up, moving up and down. And um, So I think, I've, yeah, something I've always been aware of. I mean, something as a kid, I'd be off on my own. I'd be singing on my own. And I, to sing, I'd have to, I'd have to find spaces to go and sing. And something, I, I, again, I, I used later in life because I used to smoke through like two packs of Marlboro Day. I used to drink too much. <laughs> And that really messed my voice up, you know. Um, and it just there was one day I think I was in Atlanta somewhere, and I and I heard Suede on the radio, and I thought, oh my God, that guy can actually sing, you know. Um, and it kind of lit me up again. This gift I had, which I'd I'd stopped using because I went through it for five or six years, I just didn't sing at all. And then I so I just gave up smoking and uh, and just thought about getting my voice back. And so I learned basically how to sing the mechanics of singing, which I've taught other people since, you know, how easy it is to sing. Uh, and there's a way to do it. Um, and it's very freeing uh, when, you, when you see people who can't sing and you say to them, well, just breathe, let all your air out, no sing. It shocks them that you don't have to go, <gasps> you know, it's like it's, you can teach them so many uh, beautiful things about singing. Did yeah. you did you notice that when you were singing when you were a teenager that you were getting attention for it? And how did that feel? Um, I think I came from a family where, I mean, my parents used to call me arrogant. My mum used to call me, where getting attention was not seen as a good thing. So there was, um, for some reason I ordered, I always had this great conference that I was a great singer and whether that was singing along to someone and, or doing things and thinking, oh my goodness, that's an amazing note I just hit there. Um, I've always, if you listen to the very first Gene Loves Jezebel uh, EP, which is I think God Shaving My Neck on the B side yeah. of the first things we ever recorded and Machismo, uh, Glad to Be Alive. I'm singing and I sing the same on there as I sing now. So I've always had my voice. You know, I've always been aware who I am as a singer. So I, if you listen to the song Shave My Neck, which my brother sings, he hasn't discovered his voice yet. So it's interesting when I look back and you, and you can watch lots of people through their careers, how they develop their voices. It can be quite interesting. But I, I could always sing, and people always wanted me in their band when I was younger, and uh, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I've always been a. It's never been something I wasn't aware of from a very, very young age, five or six years old, you know. So, yeah. That's early. That's really yeah. early. Um, it's interesting that you, with your mother, said you were arrogant. I bet you never felt arrogant. 
not at all. Did, did you have the same sort of feeling? I never felt that at all. No, I thought I was just being normal. But I had a confidence. I mean, I, I wasn't a very good footballer, soccer player, but I was captain of my team. I mean, there was a, I had a confidence, you know, so uh, I look back and, and, and you could just maybe blagging it. <laughs> I don't know. But, <laughs> but I, I had a certain, I mean, even though I knew I wasn't a great footballer, I thought I was a great leader. So it was an odd thing. But I, as soon as I discovered me, I mean, I, I became very ill when I was uh, in school. I forgot, I don't know what the illness was. I think you call it, we called it like glandular fever, or they thought it was. But I was off school for months. You call it mono or something here? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, I had no energy, basically. I'd go upstairs and I'd be exhausted. So I was off school for months. So that uh, put me back academically for a while. But I, I just got so into music. And I had a friend uh, who's no longer with us, my friend Paul Wallace, who's lived up the road. And he'd always bring me lots of albums, you know, because he, he, he had a lot more disposable income than I had. He was older than I was. And uh, he just, so I, I just got so lost in music and um and, and especially singers, you know, I, I, I've always, that's the first thing I look for in music is the singer. Um, so, yeah, so that was a, a blessing, really. I just got so into, I listened to a lot, a lot of Bowie and Roxy music and tons of stuff. I also liked lots of singer songwriters, Neil Young and people like that. I, I loved. I had a girlfriend that uh, was into um, Bob Dylan. I was never into Bob Dylan when I was younger. But she was into him, and she she had a, an album called Live at the Budokan, which is a live album. And I didn't listen to it that much; it was a couple of songs. But the, there was a lyric sheets with it, you know. And if you're ever if you're ever into songwriting, what I discovered very early: if you get someone who's good at the lyrics, you've got a song. Just pick up any of those Dylan lyrics, and strum any chords you like, and and, and sing those lyrics, and you have a great song. Mm. And I I learned how how important lyrics are to a song, you know, or a great title. And and that's so uh, my my early earliest songs I ever wrote I would just literally strum the guitar and just start singing, uh, you know I want you or one of those kind of very lyrical songs. Well, he's a very great lyric, great 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 lyric writer, Bob Dylan. But um, and so that was a, a shock to me. I didn't discover him till later, thanks to a girlfriend. But um, the the power of of, of lyric is uh, is everything. And that's why I'd, sometimes I'd be working with some people and I'd say, what do you have, what do you have to say something? It, it doesn't matter if you're just saying I love you or I hate you. But at the minute, your, your song's not giving me anything at all. And so, you know, when I work with people on songs, but that's for me that every song has to say something. Every song I've ever written, uh, with the ex- only one song I've ever written, which I wrote for uh, Anne Rice for Into the Vampire. That's the only time I've ever written a song that doesn't, I haven't, it's not about somebody or something has happened to me. Every other song is, there's someone in that song that I'm singing to or about.
Now, when you were not, you were ill and you had mono, which is, mm. and by the way, over here, they, they say you got that from, uh, from kissing people. I don't yeah, know. the first, the first girl, um, uh, Jane, what was her name? Jane, uh, I can't remember her last name. Jane Evans, actually, Welsh girl. She's the first girl I ever kissed and I, and I got it from her. Oh, oh, so you did get it from her. <laughs> First girl I ever kissed, yeah. Jeez, man. That's a bumpy, bumpy start, Jay. <laughs> I know. I've had trouble with them ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I Believe me, I know. Me too. Uh, but here you are, and you're not feeling well, and you're listening to Roxy Music. You're listening to Bowie. And mm. and who really knocked you out? Like, wh- who was, was was it one of those guys that really hit you square? Uh, well, I thought I was... Out of well, out of, I suppose out of those two, I mean, Roxy Music are the band that changed music. Bowie didn't change music. Bowie's a great singer, but I mean, Bowie relied a lot on whoever he's working with. Um, but I mean, Bowie's had his clothes made for him by his girlfriend or whatever, or his mum or whatever did. But Brian Ferry is a very original singer, um, and it's no it's no accident that um, that Bowie ended up using Nino and Fripp and these kind of people. That's very much a Brian Ferry. Early Roxy music. Uh, uh, I mean, he was very jealous of that band. I mean, Ziggy Stardust and Roxy Music's first album came out the, the same week, you know, within seven days of each other. And, and and Ziggy Stardust is a great album, but Roxy's music album is mind blowing as an album. Is nothing like that on the planet. No one looked like them. Putting a model on the cover, using a a, a, a designer to, for your clothes. That's all Roxy Music's uh, Brian Ferry's invention. Um, Ferry just didn't have the ambition of Bowie. He's very kind of laid back, Brian Ferry. He's kind of like just want to hang out, drink cappuccino, um, you know, smoke cigarettes, hang about in in lounges, cocktail set. Whereas Bowie's a lot more ambitious, I thought than um, uh, Bowie's a fantastic singer though, amazing sense of melody. Uh, but uh, did always relied on. You can tell Bowie's best work is who depends who he's working with. You know, he's very good with Mick Ronson. Very, because Ronson's a musical genius, and very good working with Eno and Fripp. Uh, I mean, some of those albums could be basically Brian Eno solo albums, but Eno is a hugely influential figure, I think, from the Talking Heads records, um, you know, the Roxy Music records, and obviously solo records, and stuff he's probably done with U2 and stuff as well. You know, he's a very important figure, Brian Eno. I think his, his ambient music, etc., is fascinating. You know? I always found Roxy Music to be sort of like rock couture. Uh, I yeah, love, I yeah. loved what they were doing. Mm, yeah, they're out. I mean, out there. It's, a, it's. They, I mean, they're just top. They're to be. I mean, I'm older than you, and I was younger when that when that record came out. And believe me, that was. They were like from outer space. There, the, there was nothing like them. And that you to listen to Ladytron and things like that. Yeah. You go. What on earth? I mean, the guy's singing about blow-up dolls, and um, I mean, this is out, he's out there, and that voice. I mean, the vocal on the beginning of Ladytron to this day is my favorite vocal I've ever heard. Just that opening line, "You've got me, girl," on the runaround, the runaround, "You got me all around town." Yeah, I used to play that constantly. Just that line, it is. He had so much hunger in his voice, and so much energy, and his humor on that album is immense too. You know, so that's a very, very important album, Roxy Music. But, you know, I like lots of singers. Yeah, I could tell you the same about Janis Joplin, how much it's incredible she is. Billie Holiday, uh, Leonard Cohen. I mean, I, I like singers is what I, I, I always look for first. Um, and Neil Young, I think, has been the most interesting of all the artists. His music has gone in. He could, he could have spent his whole life singing Heart of Gold and, and got away with it, you know. But he went into lots of different directions. 
totally out there um and he's a, still a great artist i think you know you, i've seen him a couple of times the last few years once he was i thought it was boring and and the next time he was amazing so he he interests me any original singer as soon as that voice comes on you say oh that is bang that's what i like uh, a lot of singers i hear they all sound like each other to a huge degree and they're all aiming at the same god you know um so that was, <laughs> other singers are uh you know, they seem to have something of their own, and they're the ones I look for. You know. Well, it's funny. I, I, you know, in '89, I was a huge fan of the Stone Roses, and then the Charlatans, and then Ride. Right. And I thought, yeah. wow, all these guys do sound a lot alike, though. I thought you guys were just manufacturing them in the UK, yeah. like just one after the other. Well, they do. It's a kind of a macho thing, weird enough, where they all, yeah, you know, they're all, you know, they're all. It's very macho working class. I'm working class, and uh people don't seem to realize that they think because uh you know we wore lots of makeup and very colorful and and we dropped artist names here and there that we were middle class and we're not we're actually from a very poor tough working class area but uh, but uh we i've never felt the need to walk be on stage and and, and trying to look some look some you know tough idiot basically uh, i find that really silly so uh you know I'd, yeah, you're right. They all they all sort of cop the same look, the same attitude, same vocal style, and this, it's the same game they all play, you know. And uh, but audiences like you know that audiences will, will identify with, uh, with the, they like to identify with a, a way of life, don't they? And they, they'll buy it. People don't actually buy music; they'll just buy a way of life very often. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They buy a posture. It's interesting yeah. for me to hear you say that you're an outsider because you know. I always thought of Jean Love Jezebel as being an outsider band because you guys were, are they goth? Are they alternative? Like, what are they? And you guys seemed like you had a, you were very fluid in the sense that you could, you know, you could share a, a bill with the cult or the cure or, you know, mm. who knew, but you were hard to categorize. Yeah. Well, I think that might've been a disadvantage, <laughs> but, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to be honest, I just didn't want to sound like anybody else. That was my main call. You know, if you find your, it's, a, it's, just, it's like the, the, the journey of life itself is finding out who the hell you are. Music's a kind of conduit for that as well, where you do your own thing, and this is who I am. This is my language. And so Gina's Jazz has been my life's work, really, in that respect. But, um, yeah, I mean, I could easily – I mean, nothing would have been easier. I said this many years ago. We could have called the band Black Death, just stuck on a very gothic, never stray, never bend any notes, keep a straight beats, you know, your tribal rhythms here and there. And would have been safe and sound and just done that, you know. Uh, but I, I, the music should be, I think every song should sound different. And, you know, you, as soon as the f f opening uh, chords or whatever come in, you know what song that is. That's to me always been more interesting to me. Uh, but uh, the, the biggest bands or artists generally, generally make the same record over and over again. And that's what people want. And the ones that fail, you know, I mean, Adamant would be still huge he still was an indian you know um <laughs> yeah that's <yeah>. true <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's loads of artists like that you think why ozzy osborne never suddenly you know became a drag queen you know what i mean he always stuck to his his thing um, i guess that's the uh, the shake your money maker right like that's that's exactly. what it is yeah it's exactly yeah <laughs> are, but, uh, do you do you still feel but it's interesting to me because you in many ways you still are an outsider right because now where do you feel you fit in oh and it's very difficult yeah i don't really fit in anywhere um i mean it's amazing if we ever make any lists of any any bands that they have you know top goth bands or anything else i'm always surprised 
that they usually put one album in there or something. But I, I don't know. I guess I don't want to fit in, really. I guess at my age as well, it's a bit late to try, start trying to fit in. Um, I just do my own thing. And when, you know, some people who get what I do, or, you know, get it big time. It takes them a while. And, I, you know, it's, it's, I have friends sometimes. Uh, they say, oh, my God, I met this guy, and he, I told him I was a friend of yours, and, he, and, and they really freaked out. I said, well, that's the two kind of people that know me there. They either have no interest in me whatsoever, have no <laughs> idea who I have, or they would, they'd, or they'll faint. You know? And if I run into people, I can see in their eyes which, which ones they are. You know? But you know, I'm, no different. I'm a human being like everybody else. I'm not better, no worse the way, way I look at it. You know? um, I think we all have this well of great wonder within us, and we should all dig deep and, uh, and find it because uh, we're all as valuable as each other, and that's, uh, that's always been the way I've looked at it. You know? With the songs that you're writing now, Jay, do you feel that you're still chasing and trying to apprehend the thing that you've always been trying to apprehend, or is it all part of an ongoing narrative? Uh, well, it's, it, I mean, I was on the, on, I, fl- I flew over the other day and it was a long flight. It was a busy flight. I was in the economy and it was a tight seat in Norwegian air and I had nothing to do. And I was, and I was, I started going through all, thank, thanks to the technology we have, I could, on my iPhone, I could look through all the songs I've been working on. And I, so I started to take notes of them. I have 180 odd songs, which I have not released, you know, and, and they're all kind of unfinished <laughs> so, so it's uh you know this because i get so far even that i mentioned that song slaves earlier on which is one of the first songs I ever wrote. i mean it's took me a long time to finish the song you know it's uh so it's <laughs> it's an ongoing search you know um i mean it's it amazes me people have an idea about me but it's when i do my solo things it's they'd be like oh yeah jay you're from genius jazz we can sing desire and all those kind they want you to sing that <laughs> And and then they they actually see me and I think it it floors them you know I get the reaction I get from people seeing me when I do my own thing with my myself and a guitar it they they're not expecting it you know because it's so free form and you know it, I never know which direction it's going to go in but I I definitely get people you get that look you know you, you can see that they're just dumbfounded they kind of go oh my god what what was that was amazing you know and I've had that reaction. But my problem is getting gigs. It's very hard because they want me to do, um, obviously, Gina's Jezebel's greatest songs, and which I don't have a problem with because a lot of that's my, they're my songs. I don't mind singing Desire. I wrote it and, you know, and, and lots of other songs too. I can sing them in my own way. But I just love to be, you know, this thing I do on my own, which is really hard to capture and record. That's why I haven't recorded many albums. It's really hard. I was talking to Peter Walsh, the producer, you know, and, and he said it's so difficult to capture that space you know you have you have a microphone in your voice and on your guitar and you have to capture everything and it's really hard to capture that moment what is it that you're trying to capture that you, that is so elusive oh man I, I could play these things i've recorded just on my computer or on the fly and the recordings uh, vary in quality because i'm capturing the moment and they are just fucking awesome you know people are just blown away they can be like 12 minute songs pieces but you're you follow them all the way along it's trying to get it's just becoming the actor a good musician is a good actor in the end where they can reproduce something that inspired them and they can go in the studio and reproduce this i i find this quite hard to do when i did uh, the album dance underwater i would done some of those songs already on my own with um, with pete with ugly bugs this band we have together and we just recorded them on the fly. 
Pete would play some music and uh, we jammed together and I would sing what was ever, whatever came in my heart, you know, and we captured it. When you go into a studio, you know, there's a budget, there's a big studio, there's a proper engineer, proper producer. Okay, one, two, three, four, capture that thing you just did amazingly two months ago. And it's really hard. Suddenly every breath is like, you know, oh, it's not quite the same breath as you did originally on the, and it's, mm. So uh, it's so it was quite interesting me to listen to Dance Underwater because I didn't I don't enjoy making albums like uh, the, the actual process of it, but I hadn't listened to it for a while and I listened to it the other day and I thought I was quite pleased. I thought it sounded uh, good, you know. So, oh. so yeah, the, I do find it hard. Are you a musician too? I am not. Uh, right. Not, mm-hmm. a, but, but I do know what you're talking about. I've heard people talk about this where it's the spontaneity. I know that. It's really um, hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Lee Mavers of the Laws like really struggled with this. Mm. It's very hard, but he, he, you know, he, he, it's an it's a th- a thing you know you can get it. <laughs> but but I've narrowed it down. Okay, I'm going to do four songs before we do uh, this tour in September, and I'm going to try and record. I got a friend with a studio up in Joshua Tree, and I'm going to try and record these songs. You know, um, <laughs> see how it goes. I just got to pick out four from 160, and I've, I've narrowed it down to four. I think which which will work. And I'll take it from there. <laughs> you, I mean, your your vaults are pretty extensive. They are. They are. I've got lots of, yeah, lots and lots of, you know. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, I, 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 it's an interesting, the, the journey for me on my, I'm, it's a miracle I was ever in a band, really. I was, I was fine on my own, really. But I started, I did, about two and a half years ago, I did my first gig on my own. I've done solo gigs with James or another guitar player. But it's not the same as being on your own, where every every second counts and every bad lyric is bad and every bum note is amplified, you know. But I did uh, some gigs with Trevor Tanner from the Bolshoi. Oh yeah, yeah. which was great, you know, because that's a whole other story altogether. But Trevor is is such a talent. But anyway, the first gig I did, I uh, I quite literally I th- I hated it because I, I was playing acoustic at home and, and I thought this sounds really good and this is going to be great. But as soon as you plug in, the acoustic doesn't sound like that. The monitors, the room doesn't sound the same. And I just felt I was dying on stage. And I hate it. And I thought, I'm never going to ever play again. I'm useless. I am just so deluded. What was I thinking? Fortunately, with the technology as it is today, a friend of mine actually taped the show and put it up on YouTube or on Facebook. And actually, I thought, oh, my God, that actually sounds real good. It was experience. I hadn't had the experience of working in a room like that trusting the sound engineer uh and it the kind of i think wow i've been so hard on myself and yeah that, that gave me such great confidence and and so i went from from being a guy that had lost all confidence and i told you about the process where i'd given up smoking get my voice back and all those things um and i'd sang a cover with julianne reagan who was an all about eve an early member of gina's jezebel uh, a friend at, uh, from front 242 said jay can you sing this rolling stone song and i said well, I, I said to him, I'm not really singing anymore, but I sh- you've happened to pick my favorite Rolling Stones song, which is called <laughs> Moon, Moonlight Mile. Oh, yeah. And um, and with Julianne, who, who sings like a bird, you know. And uh, I I did it in a take, and I sent it to them, and they just loved it, and which gave me confidence to say, okay, oh, well, maybe I should stop singing again, you know, <laughs> or just singing, you know, stop trying to perform again, because I, I was only doing odd Gino's Jezebel gigs. So I went from that one gig, as I said, where I didn't want to do it anymore to by, within a, 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 a six or seven gigs later making big leaps. I was doing encores, playing for an, over an hour, 
I'm blowing bands off, you know, so which things I hadn't planned on doing at all. Uh, so that's why I find it so exciting doing things on my own. But by the same token, if I work with Pete and James and Chris from the band, we, we, we're great friends. We've been working together forever and they're amazing musicians. You know, <laughs> So when I walk on stage with them, it's curiously, it's, um, it's odd because it's so safe. You know, they are just great musicians. It'll be one, two, three, four, <laughs> and they'll, it'll, it'll sound great. Whereas when I'm doing things on my own, it's you never know which way it's going to go, which I find totally, I'm alive in the I'm so alive in the moment when I'm doing that. Are you someone who has always been hard on yourself? Oh, yeah, pretty much. And on other people, too, by the same talk. I'm probably not that easy to be in a band with on some ways and that true. Yeah, perfectionist uh, after, after um, a weird perfection. Who knows what it is? But, uh, you know, it's it's a flawed perfection <laughs> if you know what i mean there's lots of things that you could class as wrong but i love uh, about certain things um so yeah so that's that's where i am you know i'm, I'm you know i'm in this position in my life where i i I'm still i'm still close friends with people in in my band uh but i i'm i get so excited about doing things on my own so um that's where we are. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, the, that pursuit of perfection. That's why I always liked punk rock was because yeah, it yeah. was so imperfect and the perfection exactly. was in the imperfection. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's what I mean, I've always said to someone. I thought someone said about one of my songs years ago that uh, he heard and, and he said, oh, that's like punk rock, even though it's not punk rock at all. In as far as just playing two or three chords, bar chords, they might pursue it as this was all mel- melodic uh, chord structure. The idea was very simple of capturing it really quickly and the emotion very quickly. And that's, to me, what punk is, you know. So exactly that, you know, flaws. And it's really hard to recreate those accidents, those flaws, as we might call them. You right. Know? And it's that thing you might say that uh, that that's, when you sang it or did it, it didn't make much sense. But on when you reflect on it, it sounds amazing. You think, oh, my God, where does that come from? You know, that tapped in. That's why I, I've never I never sit down and write a song. I, I can never do that because that's too cold and that's not punk rock, is it? <laughs> right. It's just capturing in that in the moment. That in the, if you're in the room with two or three or four people and something happens, it's that magical thing and you don't know where it comes from. That's what what I would perceive as punk rock. So it's raw. I mean, I, I I used to call on my artwork thin things and the idea what the idea of that not being thin. It was all about. Keeping get or getting all the fat off things, get making it pure, you know. That's what good punk is. It's there's a purity there, you know, where there's no fat on it, there's no bullshit to it. It's just very direct and beautifully pure, and that's what I try to do in with songs as well. I'm trying to do that, get to the pure essence of who you are um, as an artist or as a human. You know, we're all artists as far as I'm concerned, but um, that's what it's all about for me. Who did you like? Uh, what punk, punk bands did spoke to you? Which ones stood out for you? Uh, well, do you know, out of the, the punk bands, the, the most interesting ones, I was always I was more into the American bands, weirdly enough. Out of the first, I mean, I liked the Clash. I mean, the original Clash. I didn't trust the Clash orig- originally when they first first album. I thought they were a bit fraud uh, because they were, you know, they're, they're like had lots of slogans on and all that kind of stuff, which I right. never trusted. But obviously they developed, and I mean Joe Strummer, that they're a lot older than us. You know, he was in his mid twenties, so a lot like the American bands too. They were much older than us. But I loved Talking Heads and um, 
the Ramones. I like the B-52s and all that new wave stuff that came out. Very exciting period for me, you know. But English bands, I mean, I like the Buzzcocks. I thought they were fantastic. Songs, I always look for songs. But the period of their songs was great. Um, I saw so many bands earlier on. Um, I liked uh, the Ruts. Did you ever catch the Ruts? Oh, I never caught them. I liked them a lot. I never saw them. I liked uh, them a lot. They were amazing. It's so, I mean, they are heroin killing someone there again. It's really sad. Um, they were amazing. But I mean, they were, I mean, the jam became amazing early on. Not convincing, but they developed into something great. Um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, television. That first television album, that's oh. out there. I mean, that was like the, those kind of records change everything. I think the television's first album was definitely a game-changing album. I thought, you know, it suddenly, it suddenly everything became irrelevant before it. Um, so, and Roxy Music was, was the same in the era before that, you know, so, you know, uh, so yeah, you know, so many, so many, there were so many uh, bands uh, that came out of the punk explosion and it was a huge explosion and it had to come, didn't it? Because things had got very stale, <laughs> you know, I was a Led Zeppelin fan as a kid and, and they were spent by 1975 and they were over, you know. I mean, they were all about power, and as soon as Plant couldn't sing anymore, and how sloppy Jimmy Page had become, and uh, you know, I'm personally I don't care how good a drummer you are. Twenty minute drum solo is not very interesting. <laughs> so um, even as a big fan, you know. So, but you ask me, I was a huge fan of the Beach Boys, by the way, as a kid. Interesting. Massive fan of the Beach Boys. So um, Brian Wilson, man, um, Phil Spector. I mean. That guy is so responsible for so much music. All the bands you hear in the 70s and that, all of them, Phil Spector would have been a huge influence. They're all trying to create that big, massive wall of sound, whether you're talking about Bowie, The Who, all those bands, they're trying to create something big. And that's all to do with Phil Spector. Very important uh, figure. Eddie Cochran, very important guitar player, just using you know that, that unwound <laughs> G-string that changed when he toured in the, the UK where he was huge, every guitar player where it was Clapton, Beck, Page, all those guys, that for them it was a profound moment. Oh my God, you can bend that string if you have it, if, you, if it's, you know, if it's not wound. These are all important figures and the general, for me, most of them came from the US from, from influencing me. That's interesting because I was going to ask you if there was anybody in your hometown that had inspired you. There were, uh, well, there they was from Wales. We didn't get much attention. There were the whole the reason, uh, I'll, the reason I left Wales because it was impossible to get signed there. I literally had a plan. I'm going to get a move to London, get an agent, get a gig at the ICA, which is the Institute of Contemporary Art in London, uh, and then we'll get a record contract. And all these things happened weirdly enough because you couldn't get the the enemy didn't come to Wales. The face didn't come to Wales. You know, so Wales we had to go to the mountain. So. Um, but bands in Wales, there was a band called Budgie who were very influential. Like a, they were a hard rock band. Van Halen covered them. Metallica covered their songs. Um, but had no credit at all. There's another band called Man, which was kind of a West Coast American band, 60s kind of band. Were excellent, excellent band, but they would literally jam for an hour on one song. But <laughs> there, so there was that was the only kind of things come out of Wales at that time. Uh, and then, of course, we came along, and then you had the alarm in North Wales. We're from South Wales, and after us, there was obviously the Manic Street Preachers and tons of bands. Uh, huge, you know. Um, who else came? Um, 
Gorky's psychotic monster. Lo- loads of um, oh yeah, and then uh, so stereo- stereophonics. Stereophonics. Um, got the <laughs> loads of bands came out of out of Wales after that. You know, a big, huge. You know, five, six, seven bands came out of um out of Wales after that. How do you know when to abandon a song? In other words, I know you have like 180 songs you're working on. At what point do you say, well, I don't think this one's ever going to happen. Let's just dispose of it. Or oh, do you I'd, do well, that? I, I, no, if I know, well, I hope, hopefully I do. But if I've kept them, it means I think there's something there, you know. Um, so all the things I've kept, I've written them down and I, I've gone through them and I'll, I'll just delete them or just, I won't, won't even make notes of them if I, if I don't think they're any good. But um, with this, as, as a singer, if you, if you sing something uh, powerful, it, it's you just keep it. <laughs> you just you know, there's something. I've read there's some things. I mean, my favorite. I mean, I want to do an album. A lot of the songs are literally going to be thirty or forty seconds long. They're quite short, sharp pieces where I have, I'm saying what I want to say very quickly, and there's and that's the piece. Um, so I mean. So I just, I, I mean, I generally, I, I can spot, like today, I'll have, I'll have, I've got two guitars next to me and I will literally just play and record chord and something will come to my mind and I'll, I'll know quickly if there's anything there, you know. But uh, actually, I, I speak, I, this week I've been trying to concentrate on doing this EP. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to concentrate on this song and do this song today and this song tomorrow and see how far I get with that. <laughs> I like hearing that you, you know, obviously you're still friends with the guys from the band and, you, you know, Trevor, um, you've maintained friendships in this industry, which is commendable because it's a tough industry. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I'm quite a shy person in, ma- in many ways. I don't really like hanging out with um, with uh, rock stars or <laughs> celebrities, uh, as to be honest. But um, if, if I meet people um, in a working sense or just uh, out of uh, that situation, you're, you're at an event, then they're just ordinary human human beings. And I like them, you know. And and Trevor, I like because he's, he's a lot like me. He's, 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 he doesn't have a big ego, you know. He's got no time for the, the bullshit. Um, but he does have a sense of himself and, and, and what he's got, which is important. Um, I mean, I've always found when I found when I was young, when we first started, all the arrogant people were the least talented, you know, uh-huh. and all the retail, all the talented people I met were really, really, really nice people. Um, and that's held true. And when I see people now in the late 50s or 60s, my generation are still behaving like they're in, you know, insecure 18 year olds i find it pathetic to be honest <laughs> but, you, know, as a, you know it's not re- very real and you know being down to earth is not a it's not a bad thing it's having your feet in the ground is not a bad thing it's a beautiful thing well i've always felt that the toughest guy in the room is not the guy who's telling you he's the toughest guy in the room yeah exactly it's the guy without the scars in his yeah. face you watch yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. so i say the people <laughs> i find you inspiring because i uh, I appreciate your discipline. I'm a writer, and I, you know, I appreciate the discipline that you bring to your craft, and oh, the, like you know, the seriousness that you that you bring to it. And I, I, you know, I like that you hold yourself to a standard. You don't just want to throw stuff out there because you could do a verse chorus verse thing very easily. Very easily, yeah, yeah, you could. <laughs> <laughs> well, I admired being a writer. I mean, I, I only, I, I started. Someone asked me to do a, a Geno's Jezebel thing, and I wrote an early chapter before there was a Geno's Jezebel. Which is it's it took so long to do. So I appreciate what you do as a writer. 
Uh, and I, I could never finish a book because it's so exhausting. The way I have to replace things, put, move things around. When it's done, it was like, oh, wow, I'm so pleased with that. But that, I mean, I could, I don't think I could, writing a three or four minute or even a 10 minute songs, I, I think is a lot easier than writing a book <laughs> <laughs> or, or even a piece for a magazine or an essay. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed that people, I mean, it's the same kind of thing at work, I suppose. You know, you, you, you get this flow and you, you run with it. But man, writing. Oof. It's hard. But, you know, like, like Wordsworth said that, it, it, you know, poetry is an emotion reflected in tranquility. And you seem like you have that discipline of reflecting in tranquility. You have that down. Oh, I totally, yeah, I totally do. I totally, yeah, thank you very much. But I do. My problem is actually capturing it and recording it and putting it out into the uh, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why oh. if you look at my Facebook and I, I will just put out sketches. I literally have a guitar in front of me and go, la da 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 and there it is. And I'll just put it out there. <laughs> just because I have to let it out there. And I've, I've hundreds of pieces like that on, 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 the, on the internet. I can't really tell you how much I appreciate this chat. What a, what a great conversation. Oh no, thank you, Alex. Thanks, thanks for your interest. It was, it's been so nice to talk to someone that's interested in, in life itself. That's, that's lovely, you know. If you listen to this podcast at the gym and you're still on the treadmill, you've gotten one heck of a workout. That was a long chat, wasn't it? Uh, over an hour. Uh, with uh, Mr. Aston, who I'm sure you could tell was an absolute pleasure to speak with. Now, there are two Gene Loves Jezebels, yes, which means there are two Gene Loves Jezebel websites. For the purpose of this interview, I would point you in the direction of genelovesjezebel.co.uk. Now, there's only one Alex Green, so if you find yourself on alexgreenonline.com, you are in the right place. And if you find yourself on iTunes, please subscribe to Bombshell Radio, subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast, leave us a review, leave us some stars, you know how it works. We would appreciate it. Uh, now, if there's someone you want me to interview that I have not interviewed yet, uh, please drop me a line, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com or on Twitter at EmbersEditor or... On Instagram, we're on there now, at Ember's Podcast. Do you do the at when you do the Instagram thing? I don't know. I'm new there. I don't know if you say the at or you just say the handle. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how these things work. Uh, I finally feel like my eighth grade teacher in 1984 uh, when she couldn't work the VCR. I'm now that old. All right. If you're still on the treadmill, stay on a couple more minutes. I got some music for you. This is Gene Loves Jezebel. How do you say goodbye? Uh, apparently, uh, with this show, we don't know how. Uh, but we're keeping you in shape, aren't we? All right. Enjoy it. Gene Loves Jezebel. I'll see you next week for another episode of Stereo Embers, the podcast. There's a crazy, crazy world out there somewhere else, somewhere, somewhere. Be happy somewhere. My God, she said, What have you done? You brought shame and scorn from everyone. You ruined everything in my world 
You've done the cloak with the vagabond That black-headed thief that's here and gone You've learned to twist the knife and smile My love has lost its glory Has no flame. So how do you say goodbye to someone you love? How do you say goodbye to someone you love? Into this world, how you were thrown Wednesday's child could only be a girl You wrote your promises in the sand So I prized that blade from your bloody hand You stole my thunder, my lightning But not my rain There's a crazy, crazy 